Well, good morning, church. Glad to see all of you. I'm glad to see that you actually survived the snowpocalypse from last week. <laughs> we, uh, we try to make that decision as early as we possibly can, and one of our biggest concerns were, was that we didn't know how bad it was going to be or, or, or um, the timing of everything, but we figured it was going to happen about the time that we were going to be unloading the truck. Now, let me tell you something about our truck and trailer. If it's icy, that thing isn't stopping quick. So we have to make some, some safety decisions up front. And so I uh, hope you got a chance to spend some time with your family last week, Sunday. And um, I know that we did, and, <clears throat> and it was nice. Now, I got a couple of pieces of housekeeping that I need to, to make sure that I talk about um, before I get rolling here. Number one. Uh, last week, Wednesday, we did a worship night at Thrive Space. Uh, it was very cool. But we've got another one coming up on the 17th, Sunday the 17th. That's next week, Sunday. Only our youth are leading it. So you're not going to want to miss this. This is really kind of cool. Um, Pastor Dan's been working with uh, some of our youth, and I think that's going to be a really cool experience. So be watching for some of the details. I think we started um, talking about this on the newsletter this last week. But um, March the 17th, uh, next, um, uh, next week, Sunday, is youth worship night, but it's not just for youth. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. So you all are invited, so come on out. It should be a good time. Now, here's the other big announcement that we have to make. Uh, some of you may be aware of this already, but uh, we found out a couple weeks ago that Cedar Ridge Elementary School is getting a major uh, flooring project done over the summer. So we need to move <laughs> um, just for the summer. So we're gonna take, we're gonna take a little vacation and we're going to go back to Moore Elementary School, which is 71st and Garnett, right behind Cherryberry. That's the landmark everyone seems to know. Surprise, surprise. Uh, that will happen. The first Sunday we'll be there is May 5. And so we're starting to talk about this now because it's a big shift for all of us. So Sunday, May 5th, will be the first Sunday we'll be back at Moore Elementary School. And by the way, I, I'm just going to say this um, so that you know, Union Schools, who we rent these facilities from, have been fabulous throughout all, all of this. They've given us plenty of heads up that this was coming. They've made arrangements for us to be able to go to a different school. We kind of had our choice, and we just thought, well, let's go back to a place that we knew. And uh, some of you are real excited because it's closer to where you live than even here. So um, for some of you, it's like, well, wait a second. That's further away. It's okay. It's going to be fine. We're going to be back here next fall, but over the summer months while they're doing the construction project, we're going to be at Moore Elementary School. So if you have questions about that, you can talk to Pastor Dan or Pastor James or myself. We'll be happy to fill you in on any details, and you'll be hearing more about this. Um, as the weeks roll by, but we wanted to make sure that we started um, giving everybody a heads up with plenty of plenty of time. So that's coming. So we get some excitement happening. It's kind of fun, and I'll be real interested to see what the flooring looks like when they're done. I don't have any idea what that'll be like. So it'll be good. Anyway, all right. Let's uh, let's wrap up uh, this sermon series called Storyline. And if you'll recall from two weeks ago. <clears throat> We've ta uh, taken the, the Bible and we've more or less uh, picked four segments of it. Creation, fall, uh, redemption or rescue, and resolution. And 
the thing that I found just in my own life is I was probably in my 30s before I realized there was a single storyline in the Bible. And most of you know that when I look, when I open the pages of the Bible, I, what I recognize is that this is a library of books. And each one of those books tells a very specific part of the story, but it's written by a different author to a different audience at a different point in time. And yet, each one of those separate stories is telling a single story. And what we wanted to do was look at the, the overall arc of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation to understand that there's a story here that, that has been playing out in history and that we're a part of too. And so we broke it down and we've looked at each, each one of these, these sections. And so if, if you'll remember, we started with creation in Genesis chapter 1. It's this epic sort of poem that we come in, into contact with as soon as we open up the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes through a very specific format on how it does it. It's, it's beautiful to actually read and to, to listen to. But at the end of that book, the, or that chapter of that book, and right at the end of chapter 1, and, and just slightly into chapter 2, there's this language that's used about God being at rest. And the idea here is that you have a king who is enthroned over a peaceful kingdom. And it's this perfect picture of what God intended life to be. And yet, we all know that life ain't like that right now, is it? That something happened along the way, which is why we pick up this second little square called the fall. That human beings actually chose against God. God said, do this, don't do that. And they went ahead and did what they weren't supposed to do and messed it up for the rest of us. Thank you very much, Adam and Eve, right? But we know this. We know that there's something that's wrong. And we're left with a series of broken relationships. We have this broken relationship with God because we chose against him. We chose against what he told us to do and, and, and told us not to do. We chose against that. And so we have this broken relationship with God. But the other thing that happened is that we also broke the relationship we have with each other. And we broke the relationship that we have with ourselves. It's called shame. And we've broken the relationship that we had with all of creation. Because originally there was enough, there was abundance for everybody and everything. And now there isn't. And so with these broken relationships, and the beautiful part of that story of Genesis chapter 3 is that it's not just the story of Adam and Eve. It's your story and it's my story. Because every single one of us has the opportunity to make the same type of decision that Adam and Eve made, to choose for God or against God. Does this make sense? And so there's a certain amount of commonality we have with Adam and Eve. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it was going to be somebody. Because ultimately speaking, we all have that choice. And so their story is our story. Now fortunately, God as a creator has a commitment to his creation. And I find this is one of the most compelling things about, about God. It's the thing that I tried to, to remind myself of as often as I can. God is good. And because he's good, he has this commitment to his creation. And he is not content to leave it in the mess that it's in. And so he's embarked on this massive rescue. And we talked about this this last week, and it went from Abraham to Israel, 
to David, to Jesus, and, and we kind of tied it to certain covenants that we find throughout the, the Old Testament going into Jesus. And so this redemption, this plan of redemption, God chose to use this particular family to bring a redemption into the world. And ultimately we see that with Jesus. And, and all of the scriptures talk about this. And so there's this progression that's going through, and this is, this is movement. And we read this throughout, throughout the history. And so today we're going to talk about the resolution of this. Where's this thing going? Where, where is this moving towards? The rescue we know is not complete because we're still seeing a bunch of nonsense in the world, right? I mean, we still see it. And, and where are we now within the story? And, and is this even going somewhere? Or are we just kind of relegated to the fact where it's just all random and we're just floating on a breeze, waiting for the breeze to take... You know, all of that. These are great questions. And so we're going to take a look backwards a little bit and remember, last time we kind of skipped a stone across the surface of the Scripture, and we're going to kind of do that again today. In a couple of places that I want to I show you that you can see this. And so we're, we're looking at this, this final um, segment that we call Resolution. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we find this poem, which is a very general idea of how God created but in Genesis 2, it becomes very specific. It's not a poem anymore. It's a narrative. And there's some things that I want you to see in here that I think are, are just fascinating. And so we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 2. I want you to see this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember, we, we kind of covered this before as we were understanding what was happening in the fall. So this is Genesis chapter 2. God had planted this garden. Now, verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. And if you look, you can see the Tigris and the Euphrates and a couple of other rivers that, you know, it's really hard to pronounce. But um, this is all taking place in, in what we call modern Mesopotamia. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to cultivate it, and care for it. And, and, and I've mentioned this before. Um, that job has never been revoked. That is still humanity's job, is to cultivate the created order and to care for it, okay? So, a river watering um, the garden. So, there's, there's some imagery here that I want you to pay attention to. One is, there's a garden, and that garden has trees and rivers, and inside of all of this, human beings resided. Does this make sense? So, you've got this imagery. And the fascinating part of this is that this imagery comes up from time to time throughout the texts, and we need to pay attention to this because I think there's something going on here and I want you to see this. So, um, this becomes uh, important um, imagery in the history of Israel. So, our, our fundamental uh, sense here is that God began to work through Abraham and his family. Work through this nation called Israel. He's bringing redemption into the world because it's all messed up. So, he's bringing them into with Israel. And Israel becomes this great nation, especially under two kings, David and Solomon. Do you remember these names? Yeah. They become um, great kings, a great nation, and they experience much of the peace and prosperity that God had promised. 
Isn't that interesting? That you have the rise of a king, and under David and under Solomon, much of Israel experiences this peace and prosperity that, that God originally wanted. Not, not quite perfect, but it's, it's getting there. David's grandkids, however, are a completely different story. Um, they didn't do so well. First of all, they didn't do well with the covenant. So remember, in our history lesson, the seminal moment for all Jews is at Mount Sinai, where God creates a covenant with all of Israel. I will be your God, you will be my people. Here's how it's going to work. And so they're given this, these guidelines called Torah. And given this, this set of laws that they're supposed to live by, this is what acceptable behavior is. Well, David's grandkids didn't do really well with that. In fact, we could probably say it was an epic fail. And usually, um, the, the places where they, where they fell down was they had idols. There's some idolatry going on. I mean, they had other gods before Yahweh. And also in their treatment of the poor. Those are the two major complaints that we see throughout all of the text is that you are not abiding by my covenant. You are not living as the people that you promised you would be. Failure. The other place that David's grandkids get into trouble <clears throat> is in politics. You know, remember, there's a couple of superpowers in the area. One is called Egypt to the south, and up north in Mesopotamia, there's a series of them. And Israel gets caught in, in the middle. So now if you remember your geography, face you so I get this right, you got Egypt down here, you've got Mesopotamia here, you got Israel in the middle, and so constantly they're fighting over this strip of land. Does this make sense? Can, can you see this? I'm dancing here, right? And I think it's an important thing for us to remember that um, those kings side with one of these superpowers and it usually doesn't work out so well for them. And so eventually Israel is completely overrun, first by Assyria and later again by Babylon. And you need to understand that both the Assyrians and the Babylonians completely changed the rules of warfare. They were kind of like the equivalent, the ancient equivalent of the Borg. You shall be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Those of you who get Star Trek, you'll know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, go look it up on YouTube. So, <clears throat> no, don't do that. It'll scare you. Um, but the idea here, and, and the Assyrians and Babylonians are very good at this. They would conquer a nation, and then they would take a major part of the population and move them to another part of the empire. Why? Well, if you move a large population group from their home country, you don't have to worry about insurrection and revolt because they're trying to get settled in somewhere else. Does this make sense? You disrupt a large portion of the population. It's brilliant. Brutal, but it's brilliant. And so that's what they did. They picked up large populations of, of, of Jews out of Israel and put them in places in Babylon. And they're in exile. The Babylonian exile. And yet... They're not forgotten. And I really want you to understand what's happened here. The capital city, Jerusalem, is completely sacked. Its gates are destroyed. The temple is razed to the ground. Now remember, the temple itself was the place that God himself dwelt. 
So it wasn't just that like the Babylonians were taking over a political country. Essentially what they're saying is, my God is better than your God. This is as much religious as it is political. And so you have the Jews who are going, what, what just happened? My capital is destroyed. The temple that I worshipped in is gone. And now we're off in exile. We don't even have the land that God promised us anymore. I mean, we are talking about an identity Christ of massive proportions. Does this make sense? But God doesn't forget them. By the way, he doesn't forget us either. And so we find that he speaks to Israel while they're in exile. He speaks to them through um, some prophets. One of those prophets is a man named Ezekiel. Oh yeah, by the way, isn't that a great picture? Beautiful. I'm, uh, I think that's the River Jordan, actually, in Israel. But he talks about um, Ezekiel. And I want, to, I want to spend a little bit of time here because there's something truly fascinating that happens in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is this prophet, and he's given a vision. And he's given a vision where um, he goes to the, to the city of Jerusalem in this vision. And he meets there an angelic being. It says that his um, skin uh, shone like bronze. So apparently it was a very shiny person. And that angelic being had a measuring cord and a measuring rod with him. And then basically took a tour of Jerusalem. Now Ezekiel remembered Jerusalem. Ezekiel was there before it was sacked. He knew what it looked like. And yet he was being shown this as if it were all put back together again, and, and he's seeing this vision. So you have to remember, this is a vision that we're, we're actually going to read about. And he goes around, and, and for whatever reason, the angel is measuring things and showing him where the temple is and where the gates are and what's supposed to happen with the gates. This starts in Ezekiel chapter 40, and we're going to pick it up in Ezekiel chapter 47. So we've had seven chapters of this tour. It is exhaustive. By the way, if you have trouble sleeping, great cure for insomnia, okay? I'm just saying, it is exhaustive. But... In, ver in chapter 47, something happens, and this is really, really cool. I want you to see this. <clears throat> the man, this angelic being, brought me back to the entrance of the temple. Okay? The temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple face east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar, that he brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. Okay? Now, in, in most cases, if we see water coming from the threshold, we're thinking bathtubs overflowing, right? right? We're thinking this is a bad thing. Desert climate, Right? Not a whole lot of water, very arid. This is a big deal. Water's flowing. It's coming from the temple, which is the palace, the throne room of God. Keep this in mind. There's water trickling. Now, this is so cool. Watch. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. By the way, a cubit is from here to about here. And in ancient times, it was about 18 to 20 inches. Okay, so you need to understand, we're not talking about feet, we're talking about cubits. So he measured off a thousand cubits and led me through water that was what? 
ankle deep. Okay? He measured off another thousand cubits. Remember, trickle, thousand, ankle deep. Another thousand, it was knee deep. Right? He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. Let me ask you a question. Because I think this is important. What does the text not say? There's no tributaries. There's no other rivers that are feeding this thing. Did you notice that? It's flowing from the temple. And the further away from the temple it gets, the wider and the deeper it gets. That's cool. It is gaining momentum on its own. And the water is flowing. Now wait a minute. In Genesis chapter 2, we had a river that branched off into four. This is just one river getting wider. Do you see that? And yet, it's a river. And it's flowing. Not from Eden this time, but from what? The temple. It's flowing from the temple. Here we have one river gaining momentum. The throne room of Yahweh. That's where this is coming from. But wait, there's more. Isn't that beautiful? Love this. I saw a great number of what? Trees on each side of the river. He said, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Isn't that cool? Now, wait a second, wait a second. Wait, did, did, did we just hear about, about trees that too long ago? Yes, we did in Eden. There's these rivers and there's a garden and there's trees. God had planted it and put it together. And here we see this, this again, rivers and trees and fruit that never fails, and leaves that are supposed to be for healing, right? I mean, this is, this, is, this is fascinating because the imagery that's being used here is the imagery of Eden all over again. He said to me, the water flows and it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh, Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows because nothing can, can live in the, the salt sea because there's just too much salt. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. <clears throat> Fishermen will stand along the shore. The fish will be uh, of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Why? Why is that? Because people made a living mining the salt. You're either going to make a living fishing for fish, or you're making a living mining for salt. Salt still has a tremendous amount of value, and they understood this. 
And so we have this idea of abundance all over again. The fruit will never fail. There's all kinds of fish. There will be fishermen, and yet there will still be room for salt because that's valuable too. Are you beginning to see this? There's this abundance that's happening. This is all being spoken to a people in exile. Everything has been taken from them, absolutely everything. And God goes back to what? Eden. He goes back to Eden. The picture is this abundance where everyone is cared for. It is watered by an ever-growing river. It is sourced in the temple, which is the place of worship, right? It's sourced in God. The people in exile get their hope from a picture of Eden. Rescue, yes, of course it's that, but it's also more. It's restoration. It's something else entirely, something bigger and more abundant. This is great news for Israel. It means that God did not forget them. And like I said, God doesn't forget us either. And here's how I know that. Because I read the end of the book. I want to show you something. Isn't that great? I love that pic. The end of Revelation, we get another set of imagery. Now, please understand, Revelation is a very controversial book. There's a lot of different ways to interpret it, but I want you to see this. This is important. This is John, one of the disciples of Jesus, being given another vision, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now let me stop right there. I want to explain a couple of things. First of all, this idea of a new heaven and new earth, the first heaven and first earth had passed away. It doesn't say anything about being destroyed. It just says there's something new. Right? There's a whole line of thinking that says this whole world, world is going to get destroyed by fire. Mm-mm. That's not what it says. What it says here is that the old has passed and the new has come, and God can do that any way he chooses to do that. Also, there isn't any sea. Now, this is an odd thing. Why is there no sea? Well, there was an interpretation a number of years ago that had to do with, uh, well, you're going to have a whole bunch of people there, and so you can't have any sea because mm, that's not what's going on. In Jewish thought, the sea was the most chaotic, dangerous, scariest thing in imagination because you can't see what's going on underneath it. The new heavens and new earth, you don't have to worry about the sea. You don't have to worry about the chaos. You don't have to worry about the scariness under the deep because the old had passed away and the new had come. And we get to see another picture because he keeps going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Wow. 
all of those things that we are afraid of, those things are gone, including the sea, right? Make sense? All of this is passing away. All of those things in Genesis chapter 3. And everything that we've seen in every page since Genesis chapter 3, and everything we've experienced ourselves, the hurt, the hang-ups, the habits, all the crap that we deal with, all of that is gone. And notice the source of all of this. God will dwell with his people. Gee, that sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 2, doesn't it? But there's, this, there's no barrier between human beings and God. They're actually hanging out together. That's the picture that we're getting here. But wait, there's more. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Genesis chapter 1 maybe? The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. Because you shut the gates at night. That's when the scary things happen, right? Don't eat it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the picture of what's to come. And it reminds us of what had already been. Hmm. But wait, there's still more. Not done yet. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from what? The throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations wait didn't we just read about that didn't we just read about this to a group of people in exile right no longer will there be any curse genesis chapter 3 is over there's no curse anymore. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no uh, more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. <laughs> no more curse. So, Genesis 1, Genesis 2 Revelation 2.1, Revelation 2.2, just a thought. There's a story here that starts in Genesis, and we see it again in Ezekiel. And then finally in Revelation, there is an arc. The story is going somewhere. God is putting things to right. All of the messed up 
foolishness that we see around us will be put straight at some point. It is already in process. It is moving. It is like the river gaining strength, even though we can't see it all the time. God's first plan was God's best plan in God's only plan. What started in a garden ends up in a city because there's more people. There's room for more. And that's the whole point. But that plan of God being face to face with his human beings, the people that he created in his image, that has always been the plan. It has never changed. That first plan was the best plan. It's the only plan. That's the direction that we're moving. That's the beauty of all of this. It strikes me as I'm thinking about this. It strikes me that your worldview, how you understand Christianity, how you understand our faith interacting with real life, (laughs) depends on where your story begins. If your story begins in Genesis chapter 3, you're going to be all wigged out on sin. You're going to be all wrapped up in the depravity of human beings, and there there are traditions, Christian traditions, who focus on that. Okay? They're out there, and they focus on those things. And, and what we're doing is we're just trying to hang out and survive until Jesus comes again. That, that's really what that tradition says. Did you start your story in Genesis chapter 3? But if you start in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2, it was all created not just good, but very good. And God is acting, even now, inviting us to be part of of the rescue. In a letter written to um, a woman in England, John Wesley once said to her, "Um, my lady is more interested in the depth of the fall. I am more interested in the beauty of the rescue. Did she start in Genesis chapter 3 or did she start in Genesis chapter 1? The world is moving towards something bigger. God wants to be with us. That's where it's headed the entire time. How does God be with us? And so I want to conclude this series with the same theme that we've been talking about since January 1st. It's the presence of God. And it's not that we're chasing after the presence of God because somehow it's, it's human-directed. We're chasing after the presence of God because that's what God wants. God wants to be present with us. Does this make sense? And if you, if you grab a hold of that idea, it changes how you understand your faith. I don't have to work so hard to try to gain God's attention, but rather God is present, and really the only thing I have to do is listen to him, which is a lot harder than it sounds. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the point, the point is, is that if we're focused on the presence of God and being in the presence of God and being present with God, and he wants that same thing, we are moving towards heaven. We are moving towards 
Eden, we are moving towards how things should be. And I'll, and I'll just tell you, I'll just be as transparent as I can. I'm, I'm learning this. I don't have all this worked out yet. There are days where I sit down with my journal and I hear from God and I can't write fast enough. And there are other days I swear that I keep getting the busy signal when I dial in. For some reason, God doesn't have voicemail, right? The point is that God wants to be with us. All of Scripture attests to that. That's the direction we're going. And so tomorrow or tonight, when you wake up, remind yourself, I am in the presence of God because God wants to be present with me and everybody else I meet. So how are you going to connect with them? That's the question. How are you going to do it?